Hello and welcome to another edition of Off Camera. I'm your host, Sam Jones, and in this week's episode, I sit down with Jessica Chastain. What does it take to feel confident that you've made it in Hollywood? Coming from nowhere with no connections and going almost overnight to A-list status with leads in a string of the most highly acclaimed films in recent history would do the trick. So would a modest but steely belief that acting is what you're meant to do and always will do. Jessica Chastain wasn't always certain of her path, but she never questioned her destination. That helps when you find yourself going to audition after audition with zero film work to show casting directors. Though daunting, it allowed her the rare opportunity to enter wide public and industry consciousness with a series of performances as relevatory as they were different in Jolene, Tree of Life, The Help, Zero Dark Thirty, and A Most Violent Year. While deeply appreciative of the experiences those films earned her to work with some of the most innovative and talented directors and cinematographers in the business, Chastain says she still feels the need to eventually take her roles away from the writers and directors with whom she collaborates. Call it an overdeveloped sense of ownership, but it's the kind of ownership that creates characters whose inner life is so transparent that we're along for the ride from the first frame. But perhaps the most admirable and inspiring aspect of her position in Hollywood is how she's using it to advocate for a much-needed increase in female presence, perspective, and opportunities in the industry she loves. For her dedication to her craft and her willingness to stand up for what she believes in, Jessica Chastain gets off-camera's vote for Best Actress, and maybe for President. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Jessica. Hey, Sam. How you doing? Good. Thanks for doing this for me. Um, of course. You know, I, uh, in preparing for this, I went and poked around the internet, as we often do now. And uh, I was watching your acceptance speech for the Golden Globes mm -hmm. for Zero Dark Thirty. And I just got this sense watching you of all the Hollywood bullshit going away. And here's a person who believed in what she wanted to do and stuck with it. And, you know, you're up there sort of, sort of having your dream come true. And it doesn't seem like you felt like you were entitled to it or, no, definitely not. or anything. And, and it was just, I don't know, it made me feel like, you know, it was, sometimes we forget in this industry that this is a craft and this is a, uh -huh. this is a really highly, highly intense uh, discipline. And, and, you know, your story and, and everything I've sort of read, it, you know, it sort of is that American story of working really hard at something you believe in and sticking with it. So I, it was super inspiring just to see that. Thank you. And, I, was, and, I was really surprised I won, to be honest. Well, it looked that way. I'm just used to have um, them not calling my name. So, <laughs> And also I've, I've seen all the other performances, and um, I loved them all. So... Um, yeah, it, when it ha when uh, Clooney George called my name, it was surprising to say the least. Yeah. Oh, you also said in an interview that when you got an Oscar nomination, mm -hmm. it you sort of felt like you you belonged a little bit, and and I thought, well, I wonder if you have a setting as an outsider just in your in your personality, because I mean, you know that that would be a that would be a high bar to set to wait to feel like you belong in this industry to get an Oscar nomination. But did mm. you, did, do you sort of have that setting of feeling a bit like an outsider? Uh, or did you? Yeah, a little bit I do. I think I started to feel when I got nominated the second time. Because the first time you think like, well, this will never happen again. And I actually said that in a lot of interviews. I'm like, you know what? My movies have just, this is the first year my movies have come out and I got an Oscar nomination. I'm going to enjoy every second because... I know this is very rare, and I'm not, I shouldn't expect that this is ever going to happen again because it probably won't. And then the next year, Zero Dark Thirty came out. So <laughs> when that happened, it was the first time I started to feel, and then I won the Golden Globe. I was like, you know what? Maybe I don't have to worry so much about losing my place in the industry. Maybe now people are start, starting to see perhaps that I belong here. I have a little spot here even if sometimes I don't necessarily feel that way, but I started right. to relax a little. I think that's a common theme in this industry because it does feel, 
as much as hard as everyone works, it does feel like complete luck when a movie works mm -hmm. and when everything comes together. And so I think that's common to feel like, you know, the next job could be your last or, um, you know, whatever you have now, hold on to it because it's not going to happen again. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it takes a while to feel like you've built up enough of a career that, you know, it's not going to all end tomorrow, right? Yeah. To be honest, I, I cannot try to force my first year in the public eye to happen over and over again because it's impossible. I mean, I had like seven movies come out. I was at every film festival. I had an Oscar nomination. Like way too much happened that if I ever tried to repeat that, I would go crazy. I would be one of those actresses. I'm like, why don't I have what I was promised? You know, it's just, uh, I'm, I'm, thank goodness, it took me a while to start working in the industry because I've seen how it works. I know all that is fleeting. Um, but I, what I do have some confidence and now a little bit more comfort in is knowing that in whatever way my career evolves to, because I know it's not always going to be like at that place, uh, that I will always have a spot. I will always have some form of work in the industry, and that could be in theater as well. Uh, and that gives me more comfort. Right, right. Your story is pretty well known because I think all those films came out and everyone said, who is this person? And mm -hmm. everyone sort of, sort of um, you know, the narrative became, okay, this is someone who came from a middle-class background with no connections yeah. to the industry. And yet you also, you fall in that category of artists that knew what they wanted to do from a very young age, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you really knew. Yeah, I always knew. As soon as I knew it was a profession, I knew that it was mine. Like I didn't um, ha ever have to decide what I wanted to be when I grew up. That, that sets a really high expectation too, right? Like mm -hmm. especially um, coming from a modest background. Tell me, because you went to Juilliard, which mm -hmm. is, I think, sort of the punchline to the joke of the most artistic, the most intellectual, the most whatever. You go to Juilliard if you are that person. So mm -hmm. how, did you, how did you even know that that was a path? I didn't know what my path was going to be. I just knew what I was going to do. And that could have meant I was w working in the Bay Area in theater. And right. I would have been very happy doing that. Uh, I just... For me, I just I knew I wanted to be an actor, and I needed for every reason that I did terribly in school was the reason why I was going to be a good actor. I had um, I had trouble following directions <laughs> because uh, my imagination thought sometimes a different way. Uh, I sitting in a chair and um, working on the standardized tests. It was not something that. I blossomed in, in that school system. And that's everything where that makes you want to go, well, why does A plus B equal C? Can it, can't we go another way around? Isn't there a more interesting way of doing that? It's, right. you know, that's not really uh, welcomed and embraced in a public school system. Uh, but I think that, you know, I, I never said, you know, I never had these expectations that I needed to work Terrence Malick and with, you know, right. Catherine Bigelow right. and I needed to be nominated for an Oscar. And I never thought in terms like that. I just knew that as long as I could support myself acting, I was going to be happy. And I followed, I, I believe in signs that come to you. And if you leave yourself open to things that, that are, are in your life, you, you can find an, an incredible path. I mean, I worked uh, in a play, I did Romeo and Juliet with someone who just got into Juilliard. And that's what made me go, and I had visited Juilliard, I visited New York when I was in high school and, and visited the college. And I thought, wait a minute, if he got in, maybe I should audition because maybe I could get in since we're playing Romeo and Juliet together. Right. Uh, before that, I never even imagined that I could get into that school. Um, so I just kind of followed these paths that showed themselves to me. Do you remember your audition to yes. get in? What was it? Um, well, we were um, we did two monologues. Each of us um, was required to do two monologues. So I did a modern piece from Seascape with Sharks and Dancer, and then I did Juliet from Romeo and Juliet, Gallop Pace. 
And you got, what, someone to film you and you sent it in, or is it No, live? you audition in person. I auditioned in San Francisco. Oh, you did? Okay. Yep, I got my car towed that day. I, I borrowed my mom's car, and I drove to San Francisco, and I was so afraid of being late because I knew it would be a terrible thing to be late, and the traffic was pretty intense going from Sacramento to San Francisco. So I parked in this lot, and I got lost, and I was just like, I'm not going to be late. So I didn't pay the thing to park there. Right. And I ran, and I thought, well, at lunchtime I'll pay or whatever, and then my car was gone. <laughs> so I went and got it uh, before the callback uh, that night. No kidding. Mm-hmm. But I was very happy going to get that towed car because I was called back to the afternoon session. When you walked out of that initial audition, did you feel like you had nailed it, or like, did you have any idea? Like, could you read the room yeah. even that young? Yeah, I could because I did. Um, a friend of mine had told me the one who got in the year before had said he ended up doing like seven monologues because after each monologue they said, "Do you have anything else to show us?" And he goes, "Okay." And they, after the next one, "Do you have anything else?" And he kept saying yes. And I did the modern piece, and then I did Juliet's Gallop Pace, and I had a very bold choice with it. I played her as a, a very um, sexually frustrated 15-year-old girl who was about to lose her virginity and wanted the sun to go down and the night to be there because that meant her husband would be there and she'd have sex for the first time. So I played it like that. And um, at the end, I was, like, writhing on the floor and, you know... Um, doing the monologue, and I finished, and I sat up, and it was like, you know, the scene from Flashdance, <laughs> where everyone's kind of in their suits and everything, right. and the head of the program, Michael Conn, looked at me, and he goes, did you have fun, Jessica? <laughs> I said, yes, and he goes, okay, thank you very much. I was like, okay, and I left, and I thought, well, they didn't ask to see anything else, so either I really upset them, you know, like, how dare I take the Shakespearean verse and right. do something, um, or they liked the ballsy choice that I made. So I waited around, and then I got called back to the afternoon session. I thought, that means they liked it, whatever it was. So that's a, a good thing. I went to the callback where people do extra monologues and what, and I came and I sat down, and they interviewed me, asked me if I'd ever been to New York or my weaknesses, my strengths, all that. And they said, okay, thanks. And they didn't ask to see anything else. And I On walked, the callback, they didn't... Yeah, they just wow. interviewed me, and I was like, was like, oh, okay, and I walked out, and I thought, either my interview went so terribly, I said that, and I was like, I don't think I said anything terrible, actually. I think it went really well. Um, and then they called me a few weeks later and told me I got in. Wow. And at that point, do you feel like, okay, my life is actually changing? Totally. The idea of moving to New York was such a huge thing for me. I remember when I called my parents to tell them that I got into... Juilliard, they were so excited, but then there's also the fear of what that is. I right. mean, it's not an inexpensive school to go to, and New York City is not an inexpensive right. city to live in. Um, so there was the fear of how are we going to pay for this? What does this exactly mean? Um, but I'm the first one in my family to graduate college, so there was also that. This idea of I get to go to college, I mean, I'm going to college, but going to one of the best colleges in the United States, yeah. one of the best acting schools in the world that I get to go into, where they take 20 people, and I'm one of those 20. It immediately, my parents had always been really supportive of me, but at that point, and even myself, I thought, oh my gosh, maybe like, I always believed that I could be an actor, but it was this feeling of these people from New York, these fancy people <laughs> who, uh, you know, spend their lives working on Shakespeare, they've met all these incredible artists, they actually think that I should go there for four years and work with them. That was a huge boost of confidence for me. Yeah, obviously after getting out of school and then moving to Los Angeles and dealing with sort of the reality of the business. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just, I guess I wondered if, you feel like Juilliard prepared you for an actual career in the actual film business of, you know, trying to be a working actor? Or mm -hmm. if it was more on the, on the scholarly level of, of yeah. what that career is? I owe so much of my career to Juilliard. Oh, you... It didn't teach me so much about acting in front of the camera. We didn't have very many classes on that. And that's something when I got out, it took me a while to feel comfortable uh, acting for the camera and trying to figure out how it's different from theater. It taught me so much in terms of preparation, you know, um, about the 
dedication that you need to have, what you need to give to a role. And it taught me, when I was there, and I don't think they do this, there was a critique. So four times a year, you would go after each quarter and go into this room, and each teacher sat like, like this, and you'd go to different stations, and you'd sit across from the teacher, and they would tell you what was wrong with you. Really? And what you needed to work on. And it was four times a year where you sat there, and someone was like, kind of went in, you know, laid into you. And you had to develop very thick skin to be able to get critiques like that, and at the same time allow yourself to be vulnerable to be able to act. And there, it was a balancing act um, that you had to learn, which I'm sorry, but if auditioning, I've, I, I couldn't tell you how many auditions I had before I, I started to get traction in my career. I sometimes would have six auditions a day and wouldn't book anything. I would just go and go and go and uh, just got rejected. It was just the normal thing for me is to not be enough in some way. And if I was coming from my little town <laughs> and going straight into that kind of situation, it would have been a, a huge wake-up call. And Juilliard prepared me to, to, for a critique. That is so interesting. So what they did was basically, like, they created the hardest room at school so that any other room you were in, you could handle it, basically. Oh, right? yeah. That's an amazing idea. It sounds like what happened with you is... is whether or not it related specifically to film, it, it gave you this sort of base. Absolutely. One of the very first things when I, first, when I came out to L.A., it might have been a year before I graduated, the summer before, I had to audition to audition for a day player on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I thought... What is happening here? I, I was so lucky. I, got, I had the most incredible material that I was working on. And now I'm in a situation where really they do not care at all where I right. come from. But, I mean, it, like I said, it, the school really prepared me for anything I had to deal with. There's one particular um, teacher who was very hard on me. And one, you know, and then another teacher who, like, really believes in you. Right. And Good cop, bad cop. <laughs> yeah, but it's this interesting dynamic created between an artist and a teacher where if they're just, if they're too much, like when you're incredible, you're incredible, you get lazy. Right. And if they're too hard on you all the time without giving you a little like seed of inspiration, you just pull away. You right. feel like I can't do this. So the idea of what a teacher has to do is they have to say to you, you've got something, but then immediately go, I don't know what you were doing. That whole scene was, um, you know, you weren't, weren't connecting to your scene partner, and they really lay into you. Then you go home and you think, God, I have to really work at this to, to be harder. And that instilled that obsessive drive in me where every time I'm playing a role, I've got to really prove myself. In a way, it's in my head like that. Were you that way before going to Juilliard? Mm -mm. So, so your, your work ethic came from that school? I had a very strong worth work ethic before Juilliard, but I didn't know how to work. Okay. I didn't know how to research for a role. I didn't know what to do to prepare. Um, I was very happy to do it, uh, but it wasn't until I went to that school and saw, you know, how far you really can go um, to find a role and how far you should go to find a role that gave me the vocabulary to do so. You said something interesting uh, that I read about um, one of the things that you do when you first get a script, which is you go through the script and pick everything the character mm -hmm. says about herself and then everything in another column that someone else says about the character, and then that person becomes three-dimensional to you. Yeah. How, is that something you learned through that? or is Definitely. That I'm definitely this. I feel like I'm a detective as an actor. To me, the script is everything. Every line in that script will tell me something about who I'm playing. It's like I've got to piece it together. I'm searching. So how like do you organize that? I mean, what is your script? What do your scripts look like? Well, it, it well, of course, it always depends on a script. You know, Tree of Life script is very different um, than Zero Dark Thirty, but you know, I'll go in. Like I said, I'll have a notebook, so I'm going through a script, and if I'm saying something. 
I don't understand why she's saying it. I'll just write why, and I know that I have to answer that question um, as I keep going through it. I'm making a, a list in my other notebook. How are people describing my character? How does she describe herself? Um, anything that's like information, you know, where someone says, Zero Dark Thirty, I was recruited out of high school. That's a huge information to me. So then I underline that. She was recruited out of high school. And then I write, why, who recruited her? What was that story? So I know that I'm going to have to flesh that out later. And every time I go through the script, I keep adding to my notes to the side. Um, and then I also try to find connections between the character and I. I always try to play women that are very different from me. We do. And um, in... The most violent year I'm playing a woman who's very different. And she says something at one point um, when, talk, when talking about, um, you know, why she was saving money. She says, you were make, taking all these crazy chances. I didn't want to risk us being left with nothing. And I thought, Ooh, that's something I can relate to because I grew up actually without a lot of money. And I can understand the idea of being afraid. I don't want to be left with nothing. I've got to, whatever that feeling is. I, she understands it. I understand it. There's my way into the character. Right. So you're almost creating a memory bank so that when yeah. you're acting, you just have that there and you don't have to. I don't to. bring my, my script to set. You don't? It's in my trailer, but it's the, the um, memory of what I've created of the character is so real to me. And I'll have the sides for the scenes, but if I'm carrying this script in a way, it makes me feel like I'm not the character. Right. I'm creating this person, like this witchcraft, out of nothing. She's a sep- she's a, a person I almost like I get to meet. It was so fun playing Celia Foote. I loved hanging out with her in a way, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but to have it on set and kind of talk through it on set to me is backtracking. All of that needs to be done before the camera's on. Are you someone that also knows not only your own lines but the other no. character's lines? No, you just know your own. You know, if someone's saying... Mm. why would you do that? I memorize her subtext of what that answer is okay. in a way. Like, why, why does my character say this in response? And then I go, well, she says this because he just said this, and it connects to that. Oh, yeah, of course that's why I would say that. So, you know, I, memori- I memorize or I map out the inner life, but all that changes on a set depending on how someone is saying their lines to me. I make right. the character as real as possible, but if someone screams at me, I love you, or if they whisper, I love you, that's going to change the way I'm going to respond. So in your way, your, your prep is also a means of being able to be in the moment, in the scene. with. Completely. So if they, because that's the thing I find fascinating, is that obviously actors have to get on the same page with the director as to which movie they're in, right, mm-hmm. tonally. But they may not, you may not get the opportunity to be on the same page with each other. And when someone delivers a performance on the day, you may not know where they've decided to take it, right? Mm-hmm. So to be able to play, you have to really know that person. Yeah. Well, but, you know, it's interesting. I just did a film where this came up, but it's never really come up for me. And where the director was asking me to do one performance, but it wasn't truthful to responding to what the other actor was doing. So I actually had to say, I said, listen, I need to react to this. This is happening right now. I know you're asking me to do this, but maybe this isn't a more interesting choice because it connects me and the other actor, Um, which I've never actually had to work that out because I don't want to see anything that changes what another actor is doing because my favorite thing is to be surprised. So rather than a director coming in and saying, this is what I want you to do in this scene, let me just be in the scene and as the character and see what's coming at me you know, if I'm playing a woman who had been victimized years before and someone comes and I'm trying to get something for someone, but he comes at me and he grabs her hard, she's going to react to that in some sure, way, sure. right? Um, she might not be caressing him at that point because there's a memory of what she's gone through. Right, and that stiffening is going exactly. to be something that, that the audience can read all kinds right. of things into. So that's the exciting part for me. I mean, I would rather not know what the other character character's going to do. Yes, I have a game plan of what, where my character would lead, but all that changes on set depending what, what I'm um, being faced with.
Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp Online Counseling. You know, throughout my life, I have gone through periods where I've done therapy for various reasons. I remember in my 20s when I was first trying to find a therapist, I was literally looking in the phone book and cold calling, and I ended up finding somebody that, you know, was across town, and it took me an hour to drive there, and I knew nothing, and and it was a very difficult, you know, blind leading the blind sort of situation to try to find a therapist that could help you. Well, with BetterHelp, the whole system has changed. And what BetterHelp does is they offer licensed online counselors who are trained to listen and help. And you can talk with your counselor in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp counselors have expertise in a broad range of areas, including anxiety, grief, depression, relationship conflicts, and they can give you access to help that may not be available in your area. I wish I would have had this a long time ago because I'm the first one to say if things aren't working out and if you can't figure something out or if you feel stuck, you got to find some help. So here's what you do. You fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with your counselor in under 48 hours. Then you can easily schedule secure video or phone sessions with your therapist. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages. And of course, everything you share is confidential. And if for any reason you are unhappy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. So join the 1 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of experienced BetterHelp counselors. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they are currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. BetterHelp is an affordable option, and for our listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with the discount code CAMERA. So if you need some help, if you need someone to talk to, try BetterHelp Online Counseling. Get started today at betterhelp.com camera. You can talk to a therapist online and get help. Now back to the show. You know, now that you've had a chance to work with some amazing, an amazing list of directors, do you find that each director, are their methods so particular that it's almost like they have, they're in different professions? Or, or do you find that, that you can work with different directors the same way? Like, in other words, do they, do they have to come to you or, or do you have to sort of come to them a little bit? Uh, I think it's both. I think when you sign on to a film... I sign on with directors where they have their own point of view, and you can tell. You watch a Catherine Bigelow film, you go, yeah, that's a Catherine Bigelow film. Terrence Malick, Christopher Nolan, Guillermo del Toro. They all feel in the world of what that artist is. I have a lot of respect for directors, and I'm not very interested in being in a film where 20 people are directing. It's direction by committee. I like to know the artist that I'm working alongside with, the collaboration. So when signing up for a film, I've seen all their other films. Right. I know what their tone is. I know the world that they like to work in. Um, on set, I mean, during the, my whole, I rehearse a lot on my own in terms of finding who the character is, and I will include the director if they want to be included in that. Guillermo del Toro gave me 10 pages of backstory for my character from the moment she was born until the moment the the film starts of what her favorite smells are, what her favorite foods are, um, her relationship with her parents. Usually that's information I write on my own. Some directors like to be included. Sometimes you say to a director, um, this is what I was thinking. They kind of go, okay. (laughs) But, you know, it doesn't really matter to them. Right, right. And when I'm on set... I know I am not the kind of actor that wants to do a scene where the director says, it's one thing, it's, it's fine if it happens like one time in the movie, but if the director says, I need you to move the glass from here to here on that line. I feel sometimes when directors are too overbearing with their actors on, you need to do that, and on this line, and then you need to stand up, where sure. you, you treat an actor like a puppet, you take the life out of the film. I live for surprises. I love to be surprised by the director. I like to not know what's going to happen sometimes when I'm on set. I love to be surprised by the other actors. To me, that's the magic of what filmmaking is. On stage, there's rarely any surprises. You're doing the same show over and over again. But when the camera's rolling, to actually capture surprise, in Interstellar, I kissed Topher, and he had no idea that was coming. Right. Things like that. That's interesting. You know, I love stuff like that. Um, I love it sometimes when someone throws in a line that wasn't in the script. Of course, I prefer 
that we at least do it once the way it's written, but I'll improv with people. I love that life. So for me, that's important when working with a director. I don't want to work with someone where I'm like, I could be any actor, that you're just using me as a puppet. Well, the 20 people thing is interesting because I think what you're saying is like, there are certainly sets where it, it is sort of, you know, wardrobe by committee in the studio yeah. weighing in on, on things like that. And it sounds like you want a one-on-one experience with, with the director. Definitely. Because I, there's that center of a film where, you know, if you're the director, the production designer, the lead actors, you're, you, you're all there completely invested in the story. And, yeah. and that circle can't be too big or it gets too yeah. complex, right? And it's a collaboration. You work as a team. Sure. But at the end of the day, if I'm playing the character, I'm the flesh and blood of who she is. At some point, I take her away from the writer. I take her away from the director. I am the person. Like, I, I remember I worked very closely with the costume um, dire- um, designers, and I love, I have so much respect for hair, makeup, and costume, and it's really, every decision is super important to me about what my character's doing. And a few years ago, I remember um, I had a costume designer. I asked for something, and she said, oh, she would never wear that about my character. And I'd been playing the character for over a month. And I said, why would you tell me that I would never, that she would never wear that? Like, <laughs> I'm playing her, you know? Like, it was a very shocking thing. Right. And immediately after she said it, she's like, I can't believe I said that. But um, for me, it's a collaboration with everyone. But at the end of the day... Hopefully, if the director and I have like gotten on the same page at the beginning and like this is where I'm going, they let me find her on set. Right. Well, I did read that that you said that Christopher Nolan on Interstellar had some really specific notes. Uh, Very specific. On um, but is that a function of the story being sort of complex and the fact that there's also a younger version of you, or is that just his directing style? And did you welcome those notes, or is that like in your realm of moving the glasses? No, he didn't. He never told you how to act mm-hmm. and what, like, when to look up, when to go left, right. He never did anything like that. Um, but when coming on, you realized, okay, I could tell he had very specific notes of the look of everything, and. But it was good because from day one, I was pulled into that story. It wasn't like I'm on set and things are being thrown at me that I then had to try to fit into a character that I created. But with Christopher Nolan, I had worked like a detective. Why is she wearing this outfit? And then, like, you know, going into the costume fitting and going, okay, why is she? All right, this is how he sees the character. All right, let me, no, I'm not going to say no. Let me figure out what, this is actually an interesting choice. Because Murph in Interstellar is closed off from love after she's been traumatized as a child. So uh, actually, all these clothes, it's armor. It's a, you know, she is not presenting herself in the world as a woman who wants to be approached <laughs> in right. a romantic right. way at all. And it actually made a choice very interesting to me. Um, so all of that happening before shooting, I'm very, I'm very happy with. Right. There is a, sort of a... Sort of a broad theme that I picked up on, on uh, some of your films and, and one of your plays, too, where you do explore these kind of complex women who, who make uh, a pretty big inside personal transformation within the film mm-hmm. or within the play. Like in The Heiress, you mm-hmm. describe her as, you know, a woman who has let her life be defined by men and now she has to change the story, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and I think Jolene is so similar to The Heiress in a, mm-hmm. in a like, weird you know, backwoods America sort of way, or uh, do you know what I mean? Like totally. Um, but I want to, I want to talk about Jolene, but because I had never seen it, and then I watched it for this, and, um, and I was kind of fascinated. You're in every frame of the film, and and it's almost that thing where you get to see an actor for the first time, and like you get to completely flower in one film. Mm-mm. It wasn't like you'd done little <laughs> spots in in films for a while. Yeah, that was my real. <laughs> Jolene. Right. I mean, was Jolene like, <laughs> was like, immediately, bam, you're the, like, mm-hmm. you are Jolene. And, and, but I found that film really interesting because it's a, it, to me, it was a full on tragedy. Oh, yeah. Right. But in Knights of Kiberia fashion, that was a big um, inspiration okay. for me, Knights of Kiberia, where she's been, you know, pushed down and all these terrible things happen to her. But at the end, when she's walking away, she smiles and you know she's going to be okay. 
But God, talk about a film where she lets the men define her. And the woman define her. And the women, exactly. I mean, basically, Jolene pretty much went along with everything she didn't want to do. From the very beginning of her story, and it's like five chapters of these relationships, she completely disappears who she is in favor and becomes a doll, almost like a dress-up for the person's life she's going into so they will love her. So she, she'll change everything about herself to be loved. Um, which I've seen, seen a lot of people do that, <laughs> men and women, actually. And that was um, what I thought about mostly when I approached that character. Well, as a father, it's a, it's a terrifying movie to watch mm. if you're like, you know, you think about all the situations kids get into when they think they're adults. Yeah. And I saw Jolene as a kid right up until the point when she lost her child. Mm-hmm. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, completely. And, and I wondered, though, if that... If, if you were attracted to that role for a specific reason. I mean, it, is, that, is that a role where you just say, okay, there's, there's a ton of emotional depth here that I can play with and explore? Or was it, was it more personal to you as well? Hmm, that's a good question. I never thought about it in terms of that. Um, I mean, definitely there was a big arc for Jolene, and there was a lot of emotional... Uh, situations that she found herself in, and it was a big challenge for me as an actress to think of playing this 15-year-old girl uh, up until she's in her late 20s, and, you know, what has she learned through that time? Um, But also, it was a huge deal because I went, you know, I went from only getting auditions to play guest spots on television uh, to doing this play with Al Pacino, Salome, and then he kind of filmed the play, but that never came out. And as soon as I did that play in in Los Angeles, all of a sudden I became on a list of an actress people wanted to see for film auditions after trying for years and not being able to get into things. Right. Uh, and Jolene was, was the first job I got after I did um, Salome, and it was a big deal for me. It was like, not oh, only do I get to be in a film, but I'm the lead of this film. I get well, to be and this it's like- character's story. Well, it's like Tree of Life, and I think, you know, as a director, you, you know, there's, I'm sure if you're an auteur and you're, and you're making filmic statements and your lead character is a woman, you want to find somebody that the audience has absolutely no preconceived notion about whatever, and then they can just completely believe in that character. And that's kind of what Jolene did, I think, and Tree of Life did in a lot of ways, too, mm-hmm. is that... It allowed the story to be told in a way that that had no context of previous roles, and you only get to do that once. And you, well, you sort of got to. I do got it to do it more than once, two or three times, because my movies weren't coming out, and so the directors and they they couldn't watch other films. When I got Tree of Life, Terry hadn't seen anything I had done. He hadn't seen Jolene. Either. No, he hadn't seen Jolene. No kidding. When I got um, The Debt, John Madden didn't. Uh, he talked to Terry, but he hadn't seen anything. Um, and it, it was kind of great because then, you know, to play a young Helen Mirren, if you put someone famous there, it's actually harder to you go, that's not a young Helen Mirren, that's so-and-so. Right, um, right. But I did, and, you know, when my movies came out in 2011, it was like they were so different. But it was because I was going in and I was auditioning for everything. But when I was coming into the audition room, that all the directors heard is, this is Jessica Chastain, she's done this and this. We don't have any tape on her. We know she's... You know, God, people will vouch for her. But then they could just see me completely new. I had no baggage I was carrying in of any previous characters. Uh, and so it was great in 2011 because then people were like, Celia Foot and the Help, the Debt. They didn't quite know where to put me, which has really helped, I think, in terms of the scripts that I'm getting now. Isn't that interesting? Because you were able to do a massive body of work before people saw it, no one could pigeonhole you. Mm. And I think that's... That's the great bane of any creative person's existence is that people try to decide this is what you do well, and so you can't do any of this. And mm-hmm. you sort of managed to avoid this through a, through a strange series of coincidences. I, at school, um, Val Kilmer came to our class and he said, Hollywood isn't unimaginative, they're anti-imagination. He's like, they're actively going against their imagination, and they just wanted to see you in exactly what they know of you. And I remembered that, and I thought, well, I'm not going to let that happen with me. And um, after Tree of Life and Take Shelter played at, at Cannes, 
immediately I was getting scripts of like supportive wives and these kind of angel-like women. Right. And I said, you know what? And it won the Palme d'Or, like all this fancy stuff. And I was like, I'm going to go do a horror film. I mean, I'm going to play a, a woman and mama that doesn't want anything to do with children. Well, I was I was wondering about that if that was reactionary because Completely. not only that, but you created this look that was black hair and white Mm-mm-mm. skin and and uh, Alice Glass, very Alice Glass. That character. yeah, and kind of Kim Deal too in a weird <laughs> way. But but uh, you know, it makes sense now that you describe the chronology of it mm-hmm. of, of because your, your chronology is so out of whack to your release dates. You know that that you probably knew a lot more about about that stuff than than anybody else in terms of. It's just, I think it's, you know, when you're reading scripts over and over again, you're like, well, why is everyone trying to type me as this character? This isn't so interesting. And then you get a script where you go, wow, this is unlike, this is a part that no one has actually sent me before. And I, when I first met with Guillermo del Toro about it, I said, why? Like, why would you, <laughs> you think of me for this part? Um, and he's like, I don't know. I saw you in the debt. Right. And I said, I just thought, I was like, all right, that's really, he's like, I thought maybe you could change. Um, because that performance you had changed. Um, and that's what's exciting to me, is to work with a director or a studio that has imagination. Yeah. That's important. Well, let's talk about Tree of Life a little bit, because um, it's a fascinating, amazing film. And it's sort of, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of like, in a way, when you see a Quentin Tarantino film, you remember that filmmaking can be totally fresh and surprising. And, mm-hmm. and same with Terrence Malick, the, the idea that, he can make whatever's in his head, and if he just believes in it and has confidence in it, it's going to be a completely original piece of art. Mm-hmm. That's what that film is. Yeah. And from an actor's perspective, I wondered specifically about uh, the way that film was shot, um, where you your world was 360. In other words, mm-hmm. when you're when you're out on the lawn with the family, you could turn any way you wanted, and and it's kind of fascinating as a viewer that oh, there's the house. Oh, there, now we're across the street. And it's not just one piece in the film. It's every scene in the film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Was, that, was that a different sort of um, freedom to be able to know you could turn any way and not be yeah. constricted by the set? I think for me, a lot of the freedom came when I realized how real Terry wanted everything to be. And actually, I believed it because for my character, the most important thing to her was her children. And so... The bonds needed to be real. We worked um, together. The, I, I was there when they auditioned, and then after they were cast, those three boys, we spent two weeks together before we started filming, just bonding, going right. bowling, you know, doing these things. And even on set, I was on set, like, responsible for them. So if they were hungry, they'd ask me if they want, could have a sandwich, I'd get them a sandwich. Oh, really? Yeah, I spent, even when I wasn't shooting, I would be there with them. And I spent so much time with them uh, for three months. We would eat our lunches together. You know, sometimes you separate. We loved each other. They sent me um, recently, the, one of the um, boys sent me a present for Mother's Day. <laughs> Do you oh, know? Really? It, was, it became so real that whenever we were on set, Ter- Terry could, we'd all, and we'd all be in costume all the time. And if I'd just be hanging out with the kids doing something, Terry could be filming Brad in the corner, and then all of a sudden see us, and then go, let's go over here. And we were never supposed to be in the scene. But he created this environment that was 360 in the way of costumes. Everyone was dressed um, and in the character. But also, I, with the children, we were in character all the time because it was real for us. So which, when it ended, it was very traumatic for me. <laughs> was it really? Oh, yeah. That was something that I knew was going to happen because I don't have children. And when it ended, I knew, okay, I've spent more time with them than their families have in the, these past three months. And they're going to go back to their mothers at the end. And then I'm going to go back to nothing. All of a sudden, I'm this woman who had these three beautiful children, and now I don't. And it was very, very sad. Um, it took me some good time to get over my sadness when that ended. Is that something that, that happens on films for you in general, that, that you go so deep into it that it, there is like a separation that has to yeah. take place? The more real it is and the more love there is, the more sadness there is when the love is gone. You know, um, If I'm playing someone who's not a very nice person, 
I'm very happy <laughs> when it's over. Right. <laughs> like, good riddance, goodbye, <laughs> never to meet again. Um, but if there's a situation like Tree of Life, I remember I called my best friend, who's also an actress, and I was really sad, and I was crying, and she said, I, you know, she actually said, I'm very proud of you, because all the pain you're feeling right now means that you went somewhere very real. Um, so when I talked about earlier, Juilliard forces you to have thick skin, but also be vulnerable. You do. You have to be vulnerable. You have to let these people inside of your heart. You have to create. For me, I have to create these characters and know them and feel like they are real people that I'm playing and then say goodbye, which sometimes can be very sad. I mean, just thinking about that film, it feels... It's so close to a beautiful home movie yeah. in a lot of ways. And I'm a big fan of Chivo. And, I know. I and the way Chivo. that he uses one lens, I think he probably used a 21 that entire movie. And, um, and it feels like, I mean, it literally feels like you are living this life with these people. Mm -hmm. And will that always be the height of naturalistic filmmaking for you? Uh, you know, or, or well, would it be hard to would it be hard yeah, to have that? I know what you mean, but at the same time, as real as the relationships were, it's like what I was talking about leaving the script in the trailer. The relationships were real, so then we didn't didn't need to think about them anymore. So then, what I needed to think about um, was when we were on set. It's unlike anything I've ever worked with before, where Terry will speak to you while the camera's rolling. He's, I think Terrence Malick is the last living silent film director. Because when they made silent films, they were very loud sets. And the director would say, go to the right, do this, slap him, give him a kiss. You know, they would um, throw out direction. And then you'd have the banners of what the actors were saying. And with, and with Terry, you're on set, and sometimes if I do something and I go and I touch a leaf, he would say, he would say a line, and then I would wait till it was quiet, and then I would say this line. We all work together. Sometimes Chivo will come up to me and just kind of push me a little bit in this direction he wanted me to walk in. It was, or if I didn't want to, I wouldn't, you know? But we all worked together like a dance company. Um, there was something very pure and beautiful about that kind of theater work, where everyone that had an impulse was allowed to say it or allowed to do it. Right. But it was a naturalism in that this is my world, and I don't notice all of the people behind the camera. We were all connected. Well, I, I found that, um, like all my favorite films, there was a lot of room for the audience in that film. Mm -hmm. And I think about the grief scene when you're walking down the middle of the street. And I, I thought about how much of your relationship with your husband is in that scene and how much of it is, you know, as much as it is about losing your son, it's really about uh, about the the expectations of a marriage versus the reality of a marriage and how that comes home to roost in a way. I, I don't know. I, and that's probably totally my thing from, from my own interpretation. But you seem to have this ability to be that vessel for an audience to, um, mm. to, to sort of put their own. I, you know what I mean? I think, I I think an audience is an amazing mean. tool for a director, and a lot of people don't use it. Mm -hmm. My favorite artists are the ones that force you to lean forward. I go to the theater every weekend. I, I'm always, I get screeners, but I prefer to sit in a cinema. And I love watching actors and films. And the ones that really move me are the ones where I'm like, what's going on? And I'm in the story. The ones where everything is so obvious and the whole, I can just kind of like sit back and eat my popcorn. It's not as interesting to me, I'm not engaged. I prefer there to be mystery on screen. I prefer there's always a place in any painting and music and a performance that an audience should be involved because that's what art is for, <laughs> right? Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, it's, it's funny. I want to talk a little bit about Zero Dark Thirty as well because um, I had a moment with that film that was it reminded me of The Graduate. Mm. And, and <laughs> I don't know if this... <laughs> Connection has been made before, but okay. When I was 20 years old and I saw The uh -huh. Graduate, and the end scene comes, and Dustin Hoffman, uh, yeah, on the, they're on, on the, the bus, bus. And, and when you're 20, you see that and you go, bam, happily ever after, right? And then I saw it when I was 40, and I looked and I said, you know, the, the, the mm. thing is, what have we just done? When you get on that troop transport plane at yeah. the end of Zero Dark Thirty, and 
the pilot says, where to? You have this look on your face that I think is completely open for audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what I took away is this person was so laser focused on her goal that she never thought one second of her life after the goal. And now she was faced with, the whole, with her whole life. And also, who is she? Who is she? Right. If she's not the person chasing Osama bin Laden, who is she? What happens when you live your life for revenge and murder? Right. So when you filmed that scene, was there was there a conscious attempt to leave some ambiguity in in your? Yeah. It ends with a question. Doesn't the pilot say uh, where to? Yeah. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? Like you must be very important to have this plan all to yourself. Where do you want to go? And I think it was. Important that that was Catherine Bigelow. What a smart woman! Important to end on that question because it's not just the question of where, what, what city do you want to go to? Of course, it's like where do we go? As now, where do we go now? Not just Maya, but we as a nation, we as a people. Ex- exactly. What do we do after this point? And for her, it's this section of this is the first time in her life, like you said, where she didn't know where she was supposed to go. And what has she become? Who is she now? She has no idea who she is. She has no idea what pushes her forward. Um, And I love that it ends where you don't know what happens to Maya. Right. Just like we don't know what happens in the United States. Right, exactly. And and I learned something else from reading about you. What was the the Bechdel test? Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which I, you know, I don't know if we have time to go all into it, but it's basically it's this, really important that test. This test does the film have two named female characters who have at least two scenes together where they talk about um, something other than men, and. You know, I most movies fail that. Test. Most movies fail that, and some fail but for good reason. But if you just change the sex, are there two male characters that have names that talk to each other in two scenes, most other than likely. a woman? Most films pass that. Right, but the amazing uh, piece of information about that test is that the ones that pass the Bechdel test do way better financially than the ones that fail the test. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. The ones that the ones that pass the test are so financially more successful, and Interesting. so you know. And I guess I guess I read all this and thought about it all. And and I'm a white guy, so mm-hmm. it's very hard for me to even enter this conversation. But no, that's uh, why it's important that you do. Well, I it's wanna... easy for me as a woman to enter it. It's right. easy for Asian American actors who are c- completely not. Um, represented in films to enter the test, enter the conversation. It's more important, I believe, for the group that is predominantly dominating the films to enter into the conversation. Because if we just talk about it, it just sounds like we're complaining. Sure. But actually, I, I, you know, I'm an audience member first. I want to see diversity in cinema. I would love to see Asian Asian American actors. On screen, and they're the—I mean—they're hardly ever on screen. Right. Um, I think it's very important that you're bringing this up, and that you should talk about it with your friends. I wonder now that you've—you know—obviously you have a career now where you're able to have lots of options and lots of offers. Um, Is—is that a big consideration in what you do going forward? And was that something that you had to get educated on as well? Um. Listen, I can't only say I'm going to do movies that pass that test because the scripts aren't out there, sadly. Right. But I will say that um, I'm going to do films where my character is actively participating in the world around her. An incredible thing about working in Interstellar is, and just came, I just came to understand this about a month ago when we started doing press, the character that I play was originally written for a man. It was a story about a father and son, which... We see many times in cinema. We see many times in novels the story of father and son and you know what yeah, sure. that, that dynamic is. And Chris changed it to father and daughter. And how fascinating, because it's very rare that we get to see that relationship. And how beautiful is a father and daughter oh relationship? Oh, my gosh. The thing I really came away with is it wouldn't have matter if it was set in space or if it was set in Ohio. There's a really real relationship there that, oh, my God, if you're a father, mm-hmm. it— uh, the the decisions and the choices and the stakes of that film are so high, but but the you know the emotion is the same um, 
on any level, mm -hmm. and and it's really successful for that. Absolutely, and that takes someone. It takes someone like Christopher Nolan, who looks at the script and say, "Okay, what's the story that hasn't been told over and over and over again?" He thinks, "Okay, what if it's a daughter instead of a son?" And now all of a sudden it becomes very interesting because we don't have very many movies that look at the father-daughter relationship. It's actually inspired me because it made me realize he changed the sex of the character, but you didn't have to change much else of the character. Right. And does that mean I need to now, I can, instead of talking about, oh, well, there's no scripts that are written like that, what if I start now looking at the other scripts and saying, well, this character, that can easily be changed to a woman, and then what changes about it? Men and women actually aren't that different at no. the end of the game. We're only different when women are seen, when a character's seen in a film only for her sexual attraction. Right. If she's the sexy eye candy of the film, yes, then there, that, there's something about the film. If the man's the sexy eye candy of the film, then that's important that they remain who they are. But otherwise, we're not that different, right? No. And so I'm actually been inspired to go, okay, let me start reading these scripts that originally the writers thought of a man. Maybe it's more interesting if this character becomes a woman. Well, you can, you can tie that back into Zero Dark Thirty because if that was not based on true events, but if it was based upon a, someone with a good idea for a script, it goes, it goes back to the studio system and it becomes how do we sell this film? And if, and if the studio system, whoever, whoever is in the pitch... Yeah. Is, is of that old thinking, they'd be like, yeah, that's a guy. Look at Gravity. How many times was he told to make the character a man? Many times. It was a fight to, to keep the lead character a female. If you look at all the films that people are talking about for Best Picture this year, there's not one film that has a female protagonist where it's from a female point of view. All the films this year that people are talking about for Best Picture are all from a, a masculine point of view. What's fantastic is in the reason we're talking about it, and what's amazing about that test is I recently worked with a filmmaker who I love, and we were talking, and he said, you know what, Jessica? And I didn't bring it up at all. He goes, you know, someone was telling me about the Bechdel test, and I thought, oh, geez, this is just some, like, ridiculous thing. It's absolutely nuts and, like, fem you know, what, what they're they're making up. He's like, but then I looked at the test, and I thought, okay, it doesn't seem too unreasonable. And then I looked at my films. And I realized not one of my films has passed that test. No and he goes, And he goes, and I, he's like, I'm just so embarrassed now. <laughs> and I thought, well, don't be embarrassed because you didn't think about it. And now how great to be able to move forward and think maybe two women could be in your film and talk about something other than the male character. <laughs> right. Well, I guess it brings up the question going forward um, now that you do have sort of this wonderful opportunity to be in complete charge of your career. Um, mm. Well, <laughs> uh, more so than most people. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you feel a, more freedom to Definitely, find yeah. your own projects? Like, I mean, is that your approach now? Is, is it to wait for something to come that's great or to really make something happen and develop? I don't own? think there's such a thing. You cannot sit and wait. So I recently met with... Uh, um, artistic director at this theater company that I love. And he asked me, what are you interested in? And they were talking to me about doing a play there. And I said, I said, honestly, the things I'm most interested in is I want to do a play with female characters because I never get to act with other women. I love acting with men. But also, like, I had so much fun in the hell. I want to act with more women. And so I, I brought them a bunch of plays. Like, I'm interested in these plays because they have, like, three great female characters. I'm actively doing that. I'm, I'm, I'm not just out there, I'm not complaining because I'm very lucky with what I'm getting offered. I'm getting offered some of the best stuff there is. But I love to go to the audience and see other people's perspectives. And I want to see women on screen. And I also want to act with women. I want to be able to work with Jessica Lange and, <laughs> and these incredible actresses. So if I can do anything to create that in the industry, to, to have people go, hold on, we haven't seen Viola Davis in a lead of a film since when? Like, she's one of the greatest actresses there is. Maybe yeah. we should do something about that. If I can help shine the light on that issue, great. If I, me, even me talking about it, even if it doesn't change while I'm working, maybe it'll change for the next generation, which will still be great because I'll still be in the audience watching it and there'll be more stories for women. Um, and that's great as well. Well, there's that line in Interstellar 
that's something about, you know, once you have kids, you're basically living on earth to be memories for your kids. But we're also here to be influences and, yeah. and examples for our kids. And, I mean, it's so important to to let everyone know that they have an equal chance to do whatever it is they want to do. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm just – it's a great example. And I, I obviously can't, can do a lot less about it than you can, but <laughs> – <laughs> but I think it's fantastic, and I think it's already changed. Yeah. I think that uh, if you look at filmmakers, you know, in my father's generation, it was oh, that's all true. men. You're right. You're right. Every single one of them was a man. And so, I, you know, I think that it's a long way to go, but it's a lot better than it was, too. We grow wiser each day. Yes. So it's our, it's our job to look at ourselves and going, are we doing the best we can to represent everyone? And we're not right now. So it's good that we're talking about it. And hopefully, like I said, hopefully in the future, when we're looking at the cinema, you know, there'll be more female directors, female DPs, stories um, about Asian-American actors, more diversity in film. Because the wonderful thing about film is it should be a mirror that holds itself up to society, that makes us look at ourselves where we are at this point in our life, where we are, where we fit in the world. And right now, it's not doing the best job at doing that. Yeah, well, it is really inspiring to talk to you and and hear not only how passionate you are about this, but also to be able to look at you. I'm a father, I have three girls, and I want that world for them. Mm-hmm. You know, I really do. And um, and so, God, it's it's... I'm lucky that I get to sit and have these conversations. and I'm so enamored with your work and what you're doing. And So thank you for coming and, thank and doing you. this with me. Thank you. My pleasure to talk with you. 